Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And boy, do we have a big shoe for you planned for you today. We're going to be covering a lot of territory. Has Reaganomics now officially turned America into an S-hole country? U.N. officials touring rural Alabama are shocked. That's their word. Shocked. This is Philip Alston. He's the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. He travels all around the world looking at poverty. And he was in rural Alabama where they recently had an outbreak of hookworm. A hookworm is transmitted through poo that gets into the soil. The eggs are in the poo. They get in the soil, they hatch, they turn into a larva, and then if you walk across that soil with bare feet, the larva come up and they literally burrow into your feet. It just feels a little scratchy, you don't even know about it. And make their way to your lungs, eventually to your stomach, basically, or to your uh, intestines, where they burrow. and. You know, it, it actually, there's, there's a lot of evidence that having hookworms reduces the incidence of these autoimmune diseases. You know, where you see all these things advertised on TV that are actually immune suppressors. And there's a huge theory. I mean, the New York Times did a piece, big piece about this a couple of years ago, suggesting it's these things should actually, you know, like just like probiotics, that we should be still having them. But in any case, this is typically a disease that, you know, hookworm infestation, that you see where there's substandard sanitary conditions. You know, it was pretty much eliminated in the United States as a result of flush toilets. But no, not in, not, not in Alabama. Philip Alston, he says, this is a site that one normally never sees. I'd have to say I haven't seen this in any developed country. He was talking about raw sewage flowing from homes through exposed PVC pipes and into open trenches and pits. Nearly 41 million people. This is uh, Carlos Ballesteros reporting over at Newsweek. 41 million people living in extreme poverty in the United States. The majority are black, Hispanic, and Native American children, although there's a large number of white children as well. But black, Hispanic, and Native Americans are two to three times more likely to live in poverty than white kids. So there's a racial component to this as well. 
And Philip Alston, the UN guy, he says, the idea of human rights is that people have basic dignity and that it's the role of the government. Yes, the government to ensure that no one falls below a decent level. Civilized society doesn't say for people to go and make it on your own, and if you can't, tough luck. And he, he went on to say, politicians who say there's nothing I can do about it are simply wrong. Well, I would go beyond that. I'd say they're simply lying. I mean, you know, it's just very straightforward stuff. And the GOP is like, you know, so what? <laughs> you know, so what? We're all about more money. And they really are. I mean, this tax law that Donald Trump passed two years ago, it is leading not only to a $2 trillion deficit over, over last year and this year, a $2 trillion budget deficit, but it's also reduced federal revenue by a trillion dollars. So the Ayn Rand wing of the Republican Party, the Paul Ryan wing of the, the Republican Party, the libertarian, pseudo-libertarian wing of the Republican Party, which is now most of the party, is saying, this is great. Now, this was a tactic that Ronald Reagan pioneered in the 1980s. This is when this really started. Keep in mind, when Reagan came into office, the budget debt the, the entire deficit of the United States. Now, last year, our annual deficit, in other words, what we added to the total debt, was a trillion dollars last year. But when Reagan came into office, the entire debt for the entire country, going all the way back to the founding of the Republic, was only $800 billion. It wasn't even $1 trillion. And so Reagan tripled it. He took it up to 2.4 trillion. Now, why would Reagan do that? It's this, I mean, you know, Jude Wininsky laid this out in 1977. He said, when Republicans are in power, spend like drunken sailors and borrow all that money and cut taxes for rich people to throw the country into a crisis, an economic crisis. And then when Democrats come into office, start screaming about how they have to cut Social Security, they have to cut Medicare, they have to cut Medicaid, they have to cut support for housing, they have to cut food stamps, that's what you do. And you use the budget deficits as the excuse. Reagan tripled the budget deficit, then, then, George, and then Clinton balanced the budget again. And then George W. Bush doubled the budget deficit again and left us with two illegal wars that we're still fighting or occupations that we're still pursuing, which guaranteed that there would be another couple trillion dollars. So, and by the way, this is not a hidden agenda. The Republican Party's been right up front about this since the 70s. But the news media never talks about it. I mean, conservatives are already saying, well, we can't afford uh, infrastructure spending. We can't afford a Green New Deal. Are you kidding? We can't afford single-payer health care. Who's going to pay for it? Federal government's out of money. It's $20 trillion in debt. All of that debt, the result of spending and tax cuts during Reagan, Bush, Bush, and Trump. All of it. And now they're proposing another corporate tax cut. But back to this whole extreme poverty thing. And is, is America now officially, you know, 
an asshole country? Have we have we devolved to the point that we're no longer that we no longer can call ourselves a first world country? And is that creating misery? And is that misery creating death? Well, it turns out, new study. It's pretty. Uh, it's it's a pretty amazing study, actually. Uh, the Washington Post is summarizing the details of it. They ask people, are you satisfied, completely or very satisfied with your life? With the circumstances of your life? Are you happy, basically? 90% of people who make more than a half million dollars a year said yes. Only 44% of people earning less than $35,000 said yes. That's a big difference from 90% down to 44%. What scientists have found is that people making roughly sixty dollars to $70,000 a year, that's the point at which, you know, for a family income, at, which is typically a two-wage earner family now. now. The average family in America has 2.1 wage earners or 2.2 wage earners, whereas 40 years ago, 50 years ago, it was like 1.3. So if you're looking at sixty dollars to $70,000 in annual household income, that's the point at which the majority of middle class people start getting up toward that, into that 80 to 90% range of, yeah, okay, we're good. And then when you raise that by $100,000 or $200,000 or $300,000, it doesn't increase it much. So what that tells us is that, quote, happiness, that is, you know, the ability to feel safe and secure and all that kind of stuff. Happiness is really a function of knowing that you have access to health care, knowing that you have access to housing, knowing that you have access to food, knowing that you have access to, you know, an annual vacation. Just the basic stuff and are not at risk. Half of America can't, can't deal with a $500 emergency right now. 40% of America lives in poverty. Now, over in Denmark, it's very different. In Denmark, and there's a, a, a great site that uh, the Danish government has up, and they point out, you know, average Danes, middle-class Danes and upper-class Danes pay roughly half of their income in taxes. But they don't mind at all because they will never, ever have a health care bill, period. Including when you get old and you need nursing homes and Alzheimer's care and all that. Never, ever have a medical bill. And you will never, ever lose your home because you're unemployed. And you can go to college for free and we'll pay you $200 a month to do it. So you'll never, ever be in debt from college. And what that leads to is high levels of social trust, high levels of social cohesion, and, you know, a, a, a successful, fully developed country. Here's another study. This is from the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. This is the third study in just the last 12 months that's been published. This one looked at the years from 1990 to 2015. And what they found was that for every $1 increase in the minimum wage, and they compared state, over, state by state from 1990 to 2015, right, a 25-year period, state by state, what they found was that 
For every $1 increase in the minimum wage, there's a 6% reduction in suicides. Which means that just last year, we could have saved 20, 27,000 lives, 27,000 fewer people committing suicide if the minimum wage nationwide had been raised from 725 to 825, just by $1. And meanwhile, this is hitting millennials really hard. And I will get into that when I come back from the break. So are we now officially an asshole country? Are we now official? And please be careful, don't use that word on the air. You know what I'm talking about. And what do we do about it? I mean, this is, this is Reaganomics on steroids. Reaganomics has, has done this to us over the last 40 years. Six, over 60% of us were the middle class when Reagan came into office. Now it's fewer than 50%. This is the Tom Hartman Program. David in Canterbury, Connecticut. Hey, David, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Good to call you again. I heard you talking about rickets, and my ears perk up. No, I, I, I was talking about hookworm disease, but rickets is... Uh, yeah, know. I'm the one who wants yeah. to talk about rickets. Yeah. Hookworm, yeah. When I was at the University of Connecticut on the GI Bill, I used to take time off during classes, and I'd go over to the Benton Museum. And one time I went over there, and they had a beautiful Works Project Administration photo spread, black and whites, uh, chronicalizing, categorizing poverty. Mm -hmm. And there was this one picture, Tom, of a little black girl in a white dress who had rickets against a backdrop of an eroded, rutted field. Tom, it blew my mind, and it made an, it made such an impression on me. And Re what it made me think about... Re remind me today, what rickets is. I know it's yeah. a nutritional deficiency. I don't remember which yeah. kind. Yes. But when you were talking about these diseases attached right. to poverty, Tom. Right. This is, this is the same thing I'm talking about. Okay. And what it got me thinking about was, is there any way, I know we can't do it with this government, to chronicalize these through, through pictures, through images. If the American people saw in images what poverty looks like in America, like me, I think it would have some sort of an effect on people. Is there any way... I know independent television does a good job, but not enough people are seeing the images of what real poverty looks like in America, Tom. Right. If, we had a, if we had a Works Project Administration thing again to unleash the photographers on this country and chronicalize it, boy, would that be something, don't you think, Tom? Yeah, I do, David, but I think that the average American is coming into contact with real poverty far more frequently than they realize, and it's called homelessness. Yeah. I mean, the extreme end of poverty is losing your home. And, yeah. you know, increasingly, everybody, pretty much everybody in America is seeing homeless people, you know, living along the highways, living under bridges and underpasses, yeah. living, You're right. you know, it's, 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 it's everywhere. And I got to tell you, David, you know, growing up in America and traveling around the United States in the 1960s and 70s, I hitchhiked all over this country in the, in the late 60s, yeah. you know, from Michigan to Texas to San Francisco and back to Michigan and I never saw homeless people. 
You know, there, yeah. in, 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 when I was uh, living in San Francisco, there were some of us who were living in People's Park, and there were some of us yeah. who were living, you know, and I, in fact, I spent a couple nights down on Telegraph Avenue sleeping on a cardboard box. But, you know, that was voluntary. You know, it wasn't a crisis of poverty. It's a completely different world now since after 40 years of Reaganomics. You've got people now, quote, sleeping rough, living in their cars or living in tents or, or just cardboard boxes. Literally because there's no alternative for them. And I just want and, to say, Tom, before I hang up, is uh, I've read your Second Amendment book and your uh, Supreme Court book. I want to thank you for the help. I do need help, and those books help me tremendously. Oh, great. Well, thank and, you. And I tell people about them, and they ask me where I got it. I'm always talking about free speech TV, so I'm hoping I'm getting people to turn it on. Great. So, I talk about it all the time. Great. Well, thank you, David, and thanks for the feedback on the books. We, we really tried, you know, they're small books. They're 35,000 words, 190 pages, and we tried to make them small and easy to, you know, a book that you can read on a weekend or even a long afternoon, and uh, I'm glad it's working out for you. Thanks so much for the call. Tom Hartman here. My new book, The War on Voting, it should be titled The Republican War on Voting, which is what it really is, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, is in bookstores near you and online. It is the third in the series, the Hidden History series. The first was Guns and the Second Amendment. The second was the Supreme Court, The Betrayal of America. We're doing a book tour on the voting book here on Monday, February 17th in San Francisco, at the, or in Berkeley, actually, at the Arts and Letters series at 7.30 p.m. On Wednesday, February 19th, I'll be in Seattle at Town Hall, 7.30 p.m. Sunday, February 23rd in Minneapolis, the Blue State Ball at 1 p.m. Friday, the 28th of February in Portland at Powell's on Burnside and Sunday in Chicago on March 1st. You can check it all out at TomHartman.com. All the information is there. Welcome back. So poverty is not just, I mean, you know, A, poverty is everywhere in the United States. We are now the, we now have the second highest level of poverty of all the OECD countries. And, and keep in mind, the OECD D includes Mexico and, and Costa Rica. I mean, you know, it's, a, it's 34 countries. The first 15 or 20 are the, you know, really well-developed and, and uh, you know, top democracies in the world, principally in Europe and the United States, Japan, South Korea. None of them have this kind of poverty, 40% poverty that we have in the United States. None of them. None of them have a homelessness crisis like we have. I was just saying, back in the 60s, I hitchhiked all over this country, and so did Louise, actually. But, you know, I hitchhiked down to San Antonio. I hitchhiked out to San Francisco. I, I lived there for the summer of 67, as I recall. No, summer of 68. We hitchhiked back to Michigan. Spent time in all kinds of cities. I never saw homeless people. You know, there were some of us, I mean, you know, we were camping out in People's Park, but it wasn't because we were poor. I, mean, I didn't have any cash, but I could, I, I could have gotten it. I could have gotten a job. My, you know, my parents could have helped me out in small ways anyway. But now we've got literally homelessness, 40% poverty in the United States. Half of America would be shattered by a $500 unexpected expense. And yet almost all of our insurance policies have, you know, deductibles and, and co-pays and things that add up to thousands of dollars. 
and millennials are getting hit by this really hard. Robert Reich lays out the four reasons why millennials don't have any money. Millennials, by the way, are not teenagers anymore. They're in their 20s. They're entering the workforce. The number one reason from 2007 to 2017, the year that millennials were beginning their careers, median wages grew by an average of just three-tenths of a percent during that 10-year period. So millennials have seen no growth in their wages. But at the same time that wages haven't gone up, as interest rates have been driven down by Donald Trump jawboning the, the Fed, demand for housing has gone up and the price of houses have, have exploded. Because with a lower interest rate, you can make the same monthly payments and buy a more expensive house. And so, you know, the housing has gone up right through the roof. Adjusted for inflation, this is the same thing as, by the way, happening to college education. Adjusted for inflation, the average college education in 2018 cost three times what it did in 78. And I can tell you, in 68, when I was going to college, it was so cheap that, you know, I, I paid for my tuition working, you know, pumping gas in an Exxon station, an Esso station. Number three, debt. The average student graduate is carrying $28,000 in student loan debt and $5,000 in credit card debt things that were virtually non-existent in the 60s. This stuff all really started to take off with the Reaganomics, with the Reagan era. And finally, you know, companies are no longer offering benefits. 20 years ago, more than half of the Fortune 500 companies offered pension plans. Not just health insurance, but pension plans as well. Today, only 81 of the 500 companies, and most of them only offer them to their more senior level officials. As a result of that, fewer millennials are entering the middle class. It's amazing. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And then there's one more piece to this. What Donald Trump is trying to do to us as a result of all this. I'll tell you about that after the break. We'll pick up your calls. Hi, for the Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from The Crash of 2016. This is from Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is titled, Reagan Kidnapped the Jetsons. In a 1966 article, Time Magazine looked toward the future and what the rise of automation would mean for average working Americans. It concluded, quote, By 2000, the machines will be producing so much that everyone in the U.S. will, in effect, be independently wealthy. With government benefits, even non-working families will have, by one estimate, an annual income of thirty dollars to $40,000. How to use leisure meaningfully will be a major problem. End of quote. And that was thirty dollars to $40,000 in 1966 dollars, which would roughly be $199,000 to $260,000 in 2010 dollars. Ask anybody who was a teenager or older in the 1960s, this was a big sales pitch for automation and the coming computer age. There was even a cartoon show about it, The Jetsons. And everybody looked forward to the day when increased productivity from robots, computers, and automation would translate into fewer hours worked, or more pay, or both, for every American worker. And there was good logic behind the idea. The premise was simple. With better technology, companies would become more efficient. 
They'd be able to make more things in less time. Revenues would skyrocket and, and Americans would bring home higher and higher paychecks, all the while working fewer and fewer hours. So by the year 2000, according to Time magazine in 1966, we would enter what was then referred to as the leisure society. Futurists speculated that the biggest problem facing America in that Jetsons future of the year 2000 would be just how the heck everyone would use all their extra leisure time. And of course, there were also those who worried about what kind of degeneracy would emerge when a nation has lots of money and free time on its hands. Neither happened, and it didn't happen because Ronald Reagan stole the leisure society from us and handed it over to the economic royalists. In 1981, the royalists went right to work taking down that first pillar on which FDR rebuilt the American middle class, progressive taxation. Taking advantage of the oil shock crisis, neoliberal shock troopers immediately ushered through a revolutionary change in the tax code with the Economic Recovery Act of 1981. The first major piece of legislation signed by Reagan has slashed the top marginal income tax rate from 70% to 50%, cutting estate taxes for wealthy businesses and slashing capital gains and corporate profit taxes. Reagan succeeded a few years later in dropping the top income tax rate even more to 28%, where it hadn't been since the Great Depression. It was the second largest tax cut in history, and it was nearly identical to the largest tax cut ever. Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon's in the 1920s, the one that created the bubble known as the Roaring Twenties, which eventually burst in 1929. The great forgetting had certainly arrived. The economic mistakes of the 1920s were coming back around. And again, the influx of all this hot money in the market coupled with a robust deregulation agenda throughout the 1980s and 90s, would trigger a series of painful financial panics. The reason why the Leisure Society could be imagined by Time magazine is because ever since 1900, working people's wages tracked evenly with working people's productivity. So as productivity can continue to rise, which was likely due to increased automation and better technology, so too would everyone's wages. And the glue holding this logic together was the current top marginal income tax rate. In 1966, when the Time article was written, the top marginal income tax rate was 70%. And what that effectively did was encourage CEOs to keep more money in their businesses, to invest in new technology, to pay their workers more, to hire new workers and expand. After all, what's the point of sucking millions and millions of dollars out of your business if it's going to be taxed at 70%? According to this line of reasoning, if businesses were to suddenly become more profitable and efficient thanks to automation, then that money would flow throughout the businesses, raising everyone's standard of living, increasing everyone's leisure time. But when Reagan top dropped that top tax rate down to 28%, everything changed, as you can see in this graph. Now, as businesses became more profitable, there was a far greater incentive for CEOs to pull those profits out of the company and pocket them because they were suddenly paying an incredibly low tax rate. And that's exactly what they did. All those new profits, thanks to automation, that were supposed to go to everyone, giving us all higher paychecks and more time off, instead went to the top, to the economic royalists. Suddenly, the symmetry in the productivity wages chart broke down. Productivity continued increasing because technology continued improving, but wages stayed flat. And again, since higher and higher profits could be sucked out of the company and taxed at lower and lower levels, there was no incentive to reduce the number of hours everyone worked. In the 1950s, before that Time magazine article predicted the leisure society, uh, before that article was written, the average American working in manufacturing put in about 42 hours of work a week. Today, the average American working in manufacturing puts in about 40 hours a week. This means that despite the fact that productivity has increased 400% since 1950, 
Americans are working on average only two fewer hours a week. If productivity is four times higher than in 1950, then Americans should be able to work four times less or just 10 hours a week to afford the same 1950s lifestyle when a family of four could get by on just one paycheck, own a home, own a car, put their kids through school, take a vacation every now and then, and retire comfortably. But all that was wiped out by Reaganomics and Ronald Reagan. And that's just the beginning of the setup for the crash of 2016. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest-growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity, gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. Welcome back. So here we have GOP policy, you know, from the two Santa Clauses policy to the so-called Starve the Beast policy. Reagan's Starve the Beast was pretty straight up. Right, the two Santa Clauses was spend like drunken sailors, run up the debt, give tax breaks, and then when Democrats come into office, scream about the debt and demand that they cut spending, which has largely worked. Clinton did that. He ended welfare as we know it. He destroyed large pieces of Lyndon Johnson's great society. And he balanced the budget. And Obama was willing to actually cut Social Security, but he was stopped by a lot of outrage, but he was willing to, to go with a chain CPI. That Republican strategy has been running since 1977, and it still works. But the Star of the Beast one is even more amazing. That, that is where you, you start laying off government workers to the point where government agencies no longer work. And Trump has been really at the top of the pile with this. He's laid off over 20,000 people who work for Social Security and Medicare. And now they want people to have to renew their Social Security disability benefits every six months instead of, on average, every two years. With fewer people to process them which is going to cause a lot of people, and people are, you know, in fact, I, I saw a thread on a, on a message board over the weekend where somebody was complaining about how, how confusing Medicare is. Well, especially if you look at the Medicare Advantage programs. Oh, free dental, free vision, but, you know, if you get sick, we can throw you off the policy. There's a huge deductible if you go into, sur into for surgery. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, all, you know, there's all these scams out there. But to make it even worse... Keep in mind, in the United States, right now, 54 million American families have somebody with an explicit and well-known pre-existing condition. They're already diabetic. They already have heart disease. They already have, you know, something. 
that would disqualify them from even buying health insurance. 54 million American families. And there's probably another 50 million who, with a little bit of digging, the insurance companies could discover a pre-existing condition or a lifestyle choice or something like that. And I put that in quotes because they're throwing things like obesity into that category. And I'm not sure it's a choice in most cases. But in any case, if the Affordable Care Act were to be canceled and we were to go back to insurance where pre-existing conditions aren't covered, about a third of Americans would be just totally screwed. Maybe as many as half. Now, the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit along with, there was a group of Republican governors and state's attorney general, every single one of them Republican states. But it was 20 some odd states. I mean, it was a bunch of states. Republican governors and their attorneys general, they filed a lawsuit asking that Obamacare be declared unconstitutional. The Department of Justice joined them. They wrote a front of the court brief to go along with it. Back then it was Jeff Sessions, Department of Justice. And a lower court ruled, sure enough, Obamacare is unconstitutional. The whole law has to get thrown out. And Americans appealed, <laughs> appealed the case and said, no, no, let's take this to the Supreme Court. And so it's now before the Supreme Court. Bill Barr sent a note to the Supreme Court saying, why don't you hear this case after the elections? You no need to hear this case this year. Hear this case next year. Because what's this case going to do? It's going to strike down Obamacare. No more protection against, free, you know, against pre-existing conditions, which is going to throw even more Americans into poverty because when they get sick and they have no health insurance, you know, I mean, a $30,000 hospital bill for one or two nights in the, in the hospital? Try that without health insurance. This is what the Republicans want. They want a country that is uneducated, poor, terrified, and angry. So that then they can come along. Russell Kirk laid this out in his book, The Conservative Mind, all the way back in 1951. So that the Republicans can come along and say to the American people, you are poor, you are screwed, you are being taken advantage of, and guess what? It's black people who are doing it to you, if they're talking to a white audience. Or it's Hispanics and immigrants who are doing it to you, if they're talking to a black audience. Or it's gay people doing it, or it's, I mean, it, just fill in the blank, right? It's Muslims, it's all their fault. And if you think I'm exaggerating, Spend about four hours watching Fox News. This is played out literally every day on Fox News and on right-wing hate radio. Every day. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Anyhow, and by the way, rickets is caused by vitamin D deficiency. And I almost said that, but I wasn't quite sure. I knew scurvy was vitamin C. Rickets is vitamin D and calcium. It's... Partly a nutritional deficiency, partly not getting enough sunlight, but mostly a nutritional deficiency. Incredible. Nathan in Omaha, Nebraska. I was born a 
pretty much as Reagan was being sworn into office, about a month okay. after that. Okay, disease of despair. Alcohol. Is that all on Trump, or is that 40 years of Republicanism? I think it's both. It has been building and it has been growing, but the trend lines really sharply uh, went down uh, bad, you know, things getting worse when Trump was sworn into office. And I think that, I think part of what's happened is that Trump with his, like his inaugural address, you know, that Stephen Miller wrote about American carnage. He's making Americans more frightened. He's making Americans more neurotic. He's making Americans more worried. And uh, in many cases with good reason. And it's just, it's not good for our national health, as it were, for our national mental health. And I, I agree with, I, I agree. But yeah. that began before that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the dismantling of the American middle class began on January 20th, 1981, when Ronald Reagan was sworn into that office. Is, you know, that's the, when I was born. The yeah. day you were born. Okay. Thank you, Thank you Tom. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. Good talking to you. We'll be back. Boy, having your birthday be the day that America started being taken apart. That's That's got to be rough. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Stephen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Stephen, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. I was just getting a kick out of your description of uh, the 60s. I'm about your age, and I was, uh, we might have rubbed elbows in uh, Golden Gate Park in uh, 1967, if you were there around oh, then. I was there in 68. I spent okay. the, most of the summer of 68 there. Well, I hitchhiked from uh, Miami to uh, Albuquerque with a friend who was from Trinidad, Tobago. His father was a retired colonel, and he wanted, he was divorced from his mom, and he wanted his son to go to Vietnam and fight, and so he wanted to come to America and see what it was like. And within two weeks, he was kicked out of the house, and my dad took him in, and he lived with us for a while until he went back to Trinidad, Tobago. But I hitchhiked from Burlington, Vermont. I hitchhiked all over the place. And what was going the most what was going on the most was in poverty. It was kids that ran away from middle class homes because they were so depressed with their folks being working so hard and just thinking about materialism. Yeah, but the, you know, poverty in the United States. Yes, there was poverty. I mean, and it was substantial. But we didn't have homeless people in the streets in the '60s. I mean, there were a few, but nothing like what we see now. I mean, orders of magnitude less. And well, the thing I wanted to, the thing I wanted to say about corporate greed and Ayn Rand. Of course, you've mentioned on your show a lot of times about how she ended up an American citizen, and chain smoking caused her cancer, and she ended up using our Medicare and our Social Security before she passed on. Yep. That's something Paul Ryan will never talk about. Yep. And the other thing that bothers me is when you hear the argument Republicans make about, well, well, don't worry about these big corporations not paying taxes. They're supplying you jobs. General Motors or General Electric hires more people than anybody. But what they don't say is we're the ones that are paying the taxes, we're educating the people, we're providing transportation, marketing, goods and services, and we're the customers. The banks are reporting their earnings, their stocks are all going up, because they all made billions because of Trump's tax cut. $32 billion in tax breaks went to the big banks, and instead of using this money to increase lending, this is from Bloomberg, now topping $32 billion as the lenders curbed new borrowing, paired jobs, 
and ramped up payouts to shareholders. In other words, they lay people off, they don't loan you any more money, and they pass out the money to themselves, to the banksters. Insane. Karen in Waynesville, North Carolina. Hey, Karen, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, great show today. I wanted to go back to where you were talking about nutrition and poverty in America. Mm -hmm. I'm a retired chef, and I've always studied a lot about nutrition. And I wanted to point you in the direction of a book by Dr. Joel Furman called Fast Food Genocide, where he devotes a chapter to the fact that people eating processed food, not just you know food out of McDonald's, but food out of the dollar stores, are showing up with subclinical pellagra, which is a disease that was cured in the 1930s. It's a niacin or B3 deficiency, and it's reoccurring, and the symptoms are cognitive decline, irrational anger, skin sensitivity to the sun or rednecks. So we're really on the downhill slide in this country deeply, deeply. Yeah, yeah. And it affects it affects politics yeah. by changing people's response to, you know, you point out frequently it changes the more fearful you are, the more conservative you are, but also the less nutrient, nutrients you have, the more you're not able to reason. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Karen, thank you for sharing that with us. I, I very much appreciate it. I, we've got some of the smartest people on earth listening to this program. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. Our book today is The 31-Day Food Revolution, Heal Your Body, Feel Great, and Transform Your World by Ocean Robbins, with a foreword by Joel Furman, MD. This is from the introduction. Let me call it like it is. We live in a toxic food culture. It's led us to epidemic rates of obesity, heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, and Alzheimer's. Things have gotten so bad that most people think it's normal to have at least a few extra pounds around the middle, to depend on an ever-growing supply of prescription medications, and to lose a little more memory and mobility with every passing year. This may be typical, but it sure as heck doesn't have to be normal. Eating food is mandatory, but suffering from brain fog, living with ever-declining health, and feeling like crap are not. The fact is that right now, hundreds of millions of people are hurting from diseases that never, ever needed to happen in the first place. Dangerous changes have been made to our food supply in just the last 25 years that impact how your food is grown and processed and how safe it is to eat. The status quo is driving small farmers out of business, forcing animals to live in deplorable conditions, and producing food that's making us sick. The medical industry and the processed food industry are earning trillions of dollars in a system that's devastating lives and threatening the very future of life on our planet. It's my mission to help put an end to this madness by sharing the truth about food and helping eaters put it into action. That's, where I found, that's why I founded the 500,000 plus member Food Revolution Network, and it's why I wrote the book you now hold in your hands. In some ways, I might seem like a pretty unlikely food revolutionary, after all, in 1953, my grandfather, Irving Robbins, joined with his brother-in-law, Bert Baskin, to found the 31 Flavors Ice Cream Company, Baskin Robbins. In case anyone on the planet missed the memo, we're now pretty clear that ice cream is not a health food. But back in the 1950s, as my grandpa was pumping out delicious flavors by the dozen, not much was known about the connection between food and health. Up until then, most people seemed content with three flavors, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. My grandfather was a consummate entrepreneur, and he set his heart on offering consumers many more options, 31 to be exact, one for each day of the month. 
My dad, John, grew up with an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool. Sometimes he even ate ice cream for breakfast. He was groomed from early childhood to one day run the family company. My dad's youthful innovations included Jamocha Almond Fudge, one of our company's most iconic flavors to this day, and the rollout to all the stores of the famous pink spoons that enabled customers to enjoy free samples. But in 1967, my grandpa's brother-in-law and business partner, Bert Baskin, became very ill. His doctors informed him he was dying of heart disease. I never knew my great uncle Bert because he passed on a short time later, six years before I was born. But I do know that he was one of the greatest entrepreneurs in American history. He had tremendous wealth, a business he enjoyed, and a family he loved. And he ate a lot of ice cream. And in the end, he lost his life and his health at the age of 54. Grandpa Irv was faced with a choice. He could sell the company for a large sum of money, or he could keep the company in the business and take on my dad, then about to turn 20, as a business partner. Grandpa Irv chose to invite his son aboard. But my dad declined his father's invitation, walking away from Baskin-Robbins and from any access to or dependence on the family wealth. For him, it was a choice for integrity, and it's a choice I've always respected. My dad had seen ice cream bring smiles to a lot of people, but he also knew that unhealthy foods could fuel devastating consequences, and he didn't want to spend his life selling a product that might contribute to more people suffering and dying before their time. So he left a path that was practically paved with gold and ice cream to follow his own rocky road. My dad had suffered from polio as a child and grew up frequently fatigued and ill. In the 1960s, he fell in love with my mom in Berkeley, and the two of them set out on a healthy living path. They stopped eating processed foods, they gave up ice cream, and they based their diets on vegetables and whole natural foods. As my dad's health and energy returned, he and my mom moved to a remote little island off the coast of British Columbia, Canada, where they built a one-room log cabin, grew most of their own food, practiced yoga and meditation for several hours a day, and named their kid Ocean. They say that, um, that they almost named me Kale. I'm glad they took the more conservative route on this one. In any case, we did eat a lot of kale, along with cabbage, carrots, onions, broccoli, turnips, Swiss chard, and many other vegetables that my parents grew, plus brown rice, sprouts, buckwheat, and beans. For a treat, once in a blue moon, we'd have a few drops of organic blackstrap molasses. I think we went through about a bottle a year. Though my childhood diet was Spartan and my family lived on very little money, I grew up feeling rich in health. I became an accomplished distance runner, completing my first marathon at the age of 10. My dad went on to study the impact of food choices and to share what he was learning. His landmark bestsellers, including Diet for a New America, inspired millions of people and helped to galvanize the modern health food movement. The media was tickled by the notion of a would-be ice cream heir becoming a healthy eating spokesperson and called him the rebel without a cone and the prophet of nonprofit. Tens of thousands of people wrote my dad letters, often by hand, sharing how his work had changed, sometimes even saved their lives. One of the lives his work impacted, as fate would have it, was that of my own grandpa, Irv. Now, my grandpa had been pretty mad when my dad walked away from the ice cream company. He and my dad went years without speaking. But then something remarkable happened. In 1989, Grandpa Irv, then in his early 70s, was suffering from diabetes, heart disease, and weight problems. He'd always eaten the modern diet with a double scoop of ice cream on top. His cardiologist told him he didn't have long to live unless he changed his diet. And then the good doctor handed him a copy of my dad's book, the book 31 Day Food Revolution by Ocean Robbins. So it could be Valentine's Day, it could just be a date, you know, especially a first date. You're parked outside the restaurant where you're meeting your date in 10 minutes. 
You glance in the mirror, you notice your wrinkles and large under-eye bags. Uh-oh, what do we do? Ha-ha, here's my secret weapon, Plexiderm. You apply the clear serum under your eyes and boom, two minutes later, literally, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles disappearing right in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to tryplexiderm.com and enter voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter voices at triplexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code voices. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter voices at triplexiderm.com. Jerry in Shopville, Kentucky. Hey, Jerry, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? Yeah, Tom, I got a question. You may have talked about this before, but according to the statistics, 8,000 baby boomers a day are retired. Now, the best statistics I can find, which they turned 73, the first turned 73 last year, and the best statistics I can find is less than 20% are still working. So I'm assuming that 8,000 jobs a day are coming open every day simply because of the baby boomers retirement. That's correct. And I'm wondering. In fact, I've I'm seen numbers as high as 10,000 a day, but yes. Okay, so what I'm Seven wondering days a is week. all these new jobs they keep talking about, really new jobs, or is that simply jobs that are coming on the market, say, to, because of the baby boomers retirement? Because the job participation rate is at 63.2%, which is... Uh, down from the 66 percent in 2007 when the uh, last recession hit. Yeah. So anyway, thank you for your time, Tom. Appreciate it. Well, Hope Jerry has a great day. Je thank you, Jerry. You've raised a really important point. Uh, the labor participation rate is actually down, while unemployment is also down. And uh, you know, with regard to the 154,000 jobs that were created in the last uh, month, I guess it was, maybe it was quarter, but I'm pretty sure it was the last month. I don't know if those represent jobs that came open or if those are actually new jobs. I believe that they're actually new jobs and they subtract from that jobs that go away. That said, though, I agree with you, Jerry. I think that the probably the main reason and maybe the only reason that unemployment is at a historic low right now is because this huge generation, the baby boomer generation, it was like the rabbit going through the python when you look at population trends in the United States, is retiring right now. And as they're retiring, they, you know, those jobs are opening up and thus, you know, unemployment is going down. I think that it's a very simple thing and I think that's the main reason. I'm with you, Jerry. Thank you for that. Mick in Seattle. Hey, Mick, what's up? Morning, Tom. Thank you again for doing what you're doing. Thanks. My uh, suggestion to you is to bring up Mondragon, if you know anything about it, because oh, yeah. Richard Wolf has mentioned it, and he alludes to the fact that it is the possible solution to our economic problem. I uh, really believe that because it was able to handle the downturn in 08, that it is a successful program. Mm -hmm. It also might eliminate the executive office by putting the hands back into Congress. If we were to use the same model, making the president a manager and a uh, filibuster breaker, in other words, people wouldn't be able to talk longer than five minutes, to lower 
is powered and giving it back to the people. So both an economic and a political solution, possibly. Yeah, the political side of it would involve uh, amending the Constitution. I'm not holding my breath on that, but more and more companies are becoming co-ops. And yes, I'm very familiar with Mondragon. Louise and I went there back six, eight, ten years ago, and I wrote the last chapter of a book I wrote called Threshold, The Crisis of Western Culture. The last chapter is about Mondragon and how worker-owned co-ops, and not just Mondragon, I also went to Union Cab and Peninsula Manufacturing up in Wisconsin, how these worker-owned co-ops could save the country. Mick, thanks for the call. We'll be back. Welcome back. Elizabeth Warren is uh, saying something that I think is absolutely fascinating. She's said this in the past, but it just like got real for me. I didn't, there was a piece of it that I didn't understand. And I'm assuming that this is not new. Marissa Higgins is writing about it over at Daily Codes right now. But I think that Elizabeth Warren has been saying this for some time, but I didn't get it. What she's saying is that on day one of her presidency, she will cancel student loan debt and she won't need Congress to do it. According to Elizabeth Warren, and is one smart lady, according to Elizabeth Warren, the, under a law called the Higher Education Act, the Secretary of Education has the power to modify student loans, to wipe them out, to raise the interest rates, to lower the interest rates, to make them go away, whatever. And it's kind of a loophole in the law, and she fully intends to step into that loophole. She said, I'll direct the Secretary of Education, this is on day one, to use their authority to begin to compromise and modify federal student loans consistent with my plan to cancel up to $50,000 in debt for 95% of student loan borrowers, about 42 million people. I think, you know, up to this point, when she and Bernie have said, you know, no more student debt, people have thought, yeah, right, are you going to do that? Well, apparently, it's right there in the law. It can be done. Of course, don't hold your breath waiting for Betsy DeVos to do it, but sure enough, it's right there and it can be done. Gary in Naples, Florida. Hey, Gary, what's up? Good morning, Tom Hartman. It's been a while. Hey, Gary. Greed has no heart. Good morning. Yes, greed has no heart ever. It's a great subject. I had to call. The fight continues about entrenched greed. FDR faced it. We're facing it again, but I maintain it's different. The culture's different from FDR's culture. I think there's a difference. Or from LBJ's. During LBJ's, president, during LBJ's presidency, obviously the war in Vietnam produced a lot of social upheaval, but there was an absolute agreement across this country that we had to do something about poverty, that we had to do something about racism, that we had to bring our people together, and that we had to raise our standard of living. And LBJ put into place all these programs to bring that about, and Ronald Reagan came in and took about a third of them apart, and then Bill Clinton took a third of them apart, and you know the great society is in tatters right now. In closing, that's exactly right. And I want to, as you know, I feel very passionate, obviously, about this subject. I believe, and I'm not bragging, I believe I've nailed this down. Greed is how you treat people, how you administer government. That's how you're, what you're talking. And I maintain this, that the Americans have a responsibility also, too, Tom. This has masked our ability to govern and to function as Americans. You're absolutely right. Greed has masked us. Oh, that's their goal. That's their goal. They want to shut us up. 
Well, they're not going to do it. We're going to continue to fight. The only thing I would add one more, and I know you got to go, me and you, men like us, frankly, we're a dying breed. Well, let's hope not. <laughs> Gary. I know. I'm Gary, hoping to. All right. Gary, thanks for the call. I see a lot of, a lot of hope in the You're millennials. listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I think, frankly, the millennial generation and the boomer generation are in it together in a lot of ways. Leslie in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, Leslie, what's up? Hi, Tom. How are you? Um, well, thanks for watching us on Facebook Live. What's Good. up? Thanks. Well, it occurred to me on the Affordable Care Act, the only aspect that the Republicans were taking away was the individual mandate. That was the original lawsuit. That was the original lawsuit. But then they expanded it and asked that the judge declare all of Obamacare unconstitutional. That's what that's what's going on. That part, that part, I don't agree with. The only part I agreed with was the individual mandate being someone who works full time in a job or in a state where, and especially a city where the wages are stuck where they were 25 years ago. And even with the subsidies, it's, you know, not manageable some months. Right. So you're forcing us to purchase a you know, privately, you know, run product. It's a product at this point. It's not a public good. Right. You know, I, I'm all for an individual mandate so long as we have a public option, which is, you know, actually what they're against. So yeah. No, I, I understand what you're saying, Leslie. I mean, if everybody's not in, it doesn't work as well, and that's why the mandate was there. But the, the penalty was only $75 a year if you don't have insurance. And it wasn't required that you actually pay it. It was just requested. So the individual mandate was never was really a mandate. It was more of uh, an individual, please. So, But in any case, that was the, the focal point of the initial Republican attack. And then when they won that, then they came back and they said, well, now let's declare the entire thing. And it's yeah, just... They wanted to get everything, which I don't yeah. agree with. I mean, it's a great it's start, nuts. but I, I thought it fell under attack from Republicans in trying to, you know, make it less <laughs> appealing anyway. And I think that individual mandate, just for my part, was, you know, part of that. I mean, yeah. working full time... I mean, I'm still pinching pennies, paycheck to paycheck, and, you know, I'm 50 years old. Yeah. I can't do that anymore. I have an education. It's yeah. just everything's piecemeal. We, we just need an across-the-board protection for all of us, just as you've been talking about with yep. virtually everything as far as social services. Yeah, and this was the point that I, I guess I ultimately didn't make my point earlier, which is that in Denmark you've got people who are working at McDonald's, of course, yeah. you know, the minimum pay at McDonald's in Denmark is $18.45 an hour. But half of that is yeah. paid in taxes, right? So it's 9 bucks an hour. So mm-hmm. they're not making a lot of money. But their standard yeah. of living is just fine, thank you very much, because housing is affordable, yeah. health care is free, education is free, child care is free, transportation is... Your basic is, needs. <laughs> yeah, and, and, tra- and if you live in the cities, transportation is free, too. All, you know, the, all the mass transportation and bicycles, you know, half of all the vehicular traffic in Copenhagen is bicycles. And people can live well. And, and you know, it's yeah. uh, I'd be willing to pay half my taxes. I have a friend who lives in Denmark, a male friend who's been trying to get me over there for years. I mean, for one, I can't afford the plane ticket, but he yeah. said you should come live here. I don't think they look too kindly on Americans now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but I'm of the Scandinavian mindset. I mean, they take care yeah. of the people first. You have that base. And if you want to be an innovator, if you want to be creative and contribute to society, you have that opportunity as well. I mean, it's absolutely. absolutely. Socialism, by definition of a friend of mine, is capitalism with a safety net. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. That's, you know, or at least democratic socialism. Absolutely. Leslie, thank you exactly. for the call. It's, uh, thank you, spot Tom. On. Yeah, good talking with you. 
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.